Welcome to the State of Developer Education, a podcast by Major League Hacking. We explore how technical leaders are creatively tackling the developer education gap to help prepare the next generation of technologists for the real world and build businesses that can adapt to any changes in the technology ecosystem. I'm your host, John Gottfried. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the State of Developer Education. I'm John Gottfried from MLH, and I'm really excited to be here for this episode with PJ Haggerty, who is a dev advocate and senior staff engineer over at Spotify. How's it going? Not too bad. How are you, John? Doing pretty well. Really excited for our conversation. Yeah, I am as well. When you initially reached out, I was like, this is going to be a good one. Yeah, I certainly think so. Let's start you know, with a little background on yourself. Could you tell everyone what you're focused on and what you're working on over at Spotify these days? Sure. So it's it's an interesting place to be Spotify as far as like developer relation and developer education goes. We're not a developer product like a lot of places, but what we do have is a really great API that a lot of third parties interact with. So what we focus on is educating people on what the API can do for them. Everything from uh, just boning up on your API usage skills, if, you, if you're just like, you know, a new developer or a nascent developer, if you will. And you just want to, you know, bang against an API that has really good documentation, we've got that for you. Or if you'd like to build an app, one of the apps that we saw right after Spotify Wrapped came out was a thing called Instaposter or Instafestival. And the way it worked was you could take your Spotify Wrapped and create a, a Bonnaroo or Coachella style concert poster based on your playlist, which was really cool. So a lot of different things that people are doing. And our job is really just to educate people, let them know like, hey, Spotify does have an API. It is really cool. You could do a lot of cool things with it. And, you know, kind of showing people how to get involved and how to do things. That's our main focus. That's awesome. I think I saw the concert poster thing on Instagram and I definitely was impressed by the graphic design skills. I didn't realize it was auto-generated. Yeah. Well, it, not exactly auto-generated. There's a few things you had to do, but it had nothing to do with, like our team didn't do it. We didn't even know right. about it, but it was cool to see that someone went to the API and said, hey, here's something I can do. Let's see if I can make something interesting out of this. And it, it worked out really well. Yeah. So... When you say it's not a developer product, like obviously, you know, probably everyone's heard of Spotify from the consumer perspective. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Why have an API at all? And, and I know that may seem like an obvious question, but it's, you know, what's the strategy of having a developer platform for something that's a consumer product like that? Sure. And I think that part of it goes to the fact that at, at its heart, while Spotify is a music platform, like, and that's its goal, it was built by developers who wanted to see like, what could they do with streaming? What could they build? And that makes it exciting. And I think they wanted to keep that developer aspect. And that's why you have things like, you know, developer.spotify.com and backstage.com. It's not backstage.com. That's a different thing where you can get jobs on Broadway. But, you know, Spotify has a backstage thing, which like develops open source tools and things like that to work with streaming music. And so there's a lot of like interesting things. And I think that the tech side of it, you know, when the founders and the original people, when they looked at it, they're like, we want to make that available to everyone to a degree. So let's build an educational side to this. Let's build an API side to this where people could learn and grow. And maybe we find out what the next cool thing is that we can actually do with the product itself. Or maybe it just stretches a little bit of what we're doing to bring more people into enjoying the music that Spotify delivers. That's awesome. Part of what got me into tech many, many years ago was a series of events called Music Hack Day. And Spotify was involved, a lot of other companies that are sort of now defunct are involved, but the idea of like bringing together this like really creative kind of artistic discipline with technology really felt like it was at the core of a lot of interesting projects, but also like a community that sort of built up around it. 
Sort of feels like that's what you're tapping into now, too. Well, that's part of it. And I think that from my perspective, which is a little bit different, you know, growing up, I was a musician. I am a musician still. But growing up, I was also a musician. And to me, the transition between music and math and programming, that's a linear equation, essentially. Like these things all equate to the same thing. Music is math. Math is programming. I know a lot of people are against that point of view, but like we're abstracted away from it, but it still is at its heart very much math. It's, you know, we're using variables and it's interesting to me when people say like, oh, I never used high school algebra, but I'm a programmer. It's like, well, you know, if you write down like, you know, def this thing, this variable is this, that you're using math, you're just using abstractive math. You're not doing the numbers, you're just using words in place of it. It's the same thing. So for me, like a product like Spotify saying like, you know, yes, we are a music delivery service or a streaming service, but what we are at heart is a giant application that's really cool. It has a lot of cool features. So I feel like we can use that to educate developers and say like, hey, like, listen, we're going to blur these lines. We're going to make it seem as if it's, it's, it's more difficult to establish that whether this is, is it music or is it tech? And, you know, I, I like that attitude because in my mind, those are, there's very much a lot of handholding that goes there. There's a lot of, you know, less a Venn diagram and more a very lazy 3D looking circle. There's so much cohesion between those worlds that there's no reason why you can't bring them together. And that's something I've always tried to do, whether it's, you know, I did some talks early on in my DevRel career about the effect that music can have on the brain. It's something that I studied when I was in school, how you can get cognitive boosts and write better code by finding the right music to push you forward. Something called the Mozart effect. I've performed music on stage. It's about coding. Like the crossover is there. And I think that's what makes it so interesting. And in a lot of ways, you know, coding, especially in the open source world, the individual world, it is a bit artistic. You know, you, you do have the opportunity to create and have an artisanal feel to what you're doing. It's not just like, you know, rubber stamping code, copying, pasting from Stack Overflow, which yes, we all do that, but we do it in an artistic way that makes it our own. So yeah, it's interesting. And, you know, when you look at that and the creativity of it, and then you, you look at things like the modern context, people are, and it's important to bring up, people are talking about how chat GPT can write code. And, and yes, it can, but it's kind of like, you know, whether you're going to have a steak or beef in a tin, there's a difference between those. They're the same, but they're not the same. And the difference is in the creativity, the human factor that's brought to it. And I think that's key when we talk about creativity, whether it's music or writing code. Yeah, absolutely. I always felt like coding was as much an art as a science. And you can write the best, most accurate, most specific code possible. But that doesn't necessarily mean it will inspire anyone or solve a real problem. And there's a disconnect right. between like crafting the best algorithm and crafting the best piece of software that people resonate with. Right. And it goes into some of the issues that tech is experiencing in general today. People are writing, you know, building applications in desperate search of a problem. Mm -hmm. Like, hey, we've got this solution. If just, if only we had a problem that we could apply it to. And this is where even, even the giants like Facebook and, and places like that get in trouble because you have a solution, but you don't have a problem yet. Let's focus on actually like iterating and innovating on things that need solutions, things that actually help humans do things a little bit better. I think when we do that, that's where the creativity comes in. And you're inspired to say like, yeah, we could be talking about, you know, Kubernetes or deploying an application to containers in the cloud. What problem is that? Well, it actually makes us use fewer resources in places like AWS or Google. So we're actually using less electricity. It's better for the environment. This helps humans in the long run. Mm -hmm. That's what we should be focusing on. Not necessarily, you know, can I get as many likes as I can on Instagram? Yeah. So I, I want to go back to something you mentioned kind of offhand that I was really curious about. You said that you perform music about coding. Yeah. I, well, what I, does that mean? Like I've seen 
Jonathan Colton, you know, Code Monkey, mm-hmm. like Code that, Monkey, that yeah. whole genre. But what are you talking about? So I was inspired by a guy when I was some of my early open source programming days was in, in Ruby. And there's this great guy, Jim Wyrick. And whenever Jim and I could drive to a conference together, he'd bring a guitar, a ukulele, something. And he was one of those guys who like really knew every song ever and could show you how to play it. But he had a great song and I'll send you the link to it so you can include it in the show notes or whatever. But he did a song when we threw a conference called Distill that was about like, you know, Lisp and C and like specifics about the languages that, you know, funny, still comedic, but, you know, kind of about the importance of code. So Jim passed away a few years ago. I happened to be doing that talk about music and cognitive development at a conference in Lyon, France called Ruby Lugdunum, which is the old Roman name of Lyon. That's not important to the story. But they asked, you know, could I play a song? Would I be willing to bring my guitar and play a song up on stage? And so I wrote it about, about coding, but also about Jim and and how he kind of brought this one, the sense of wonder, this hello world feeling to the world. And so it, there's been a few times that I've had the opportunity to like sit down with folks and usually, you know, and create, but write, you know, play songs about code and what it's like to write code. And it's definitely a niche music situation. Like it's not people outside of code are not going to get this. People who are not, you know, builders, developers, hackers, programmers, they're not going to understand what these jokes are. But it's kind of just a fun way to like, you know, kind of say like, hey, you know, there's no, if you can write a song about avocados and peanut butter and fruit salad, yummy, yummy, you can write songs about C and JavaScript and why not? And that's kind of the attitude. It's fun. You put a few simple chords together and you write a song. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a, a lot of overlap between programmers and musicians. So I could see how that would uh, oh yeah, go over well at a conference. I want to go back to something else you said as well about math and programming and how they intersect, but people often pushing for them not to intersect these days. Mm-hmm. Were you really into math growing up? Oh my God, I love math. Okay, so I you're on the math side of things. I, I hated math. Yes, that's understand. See, the funny thing is loving math helps me to understand why people don't. And often I think that part of it is with this job that I have, I travel a lot. I'm able to talk to a lot of people. I find that this attitude of this anti-math attitude is actually very heavily an American attitude. Interesting. But I think that part of it is the way that it's taught. When I was taught math, I was lucky enough. I, this is going to sound so not humble, John, but I was taught math by my older brother when, like in the crib. Like he wanted, when I was born, he wanted a three-year-old to be with him. Mm-hmm. So he was going to make me be that. And we could talk about, you know, trauma and things like that, but that's a whole other whole other topic. Sibling-based trauma. Yeah. Because of that, he got me to do things that normal babies don't do. By the time I was ready to go into pre-K, you know, I was three years old and I was doing math workbooks because it was something like your brain just understands it. And babies get math. They understand simple counting, but they also understand simple arithmetic because it's the way that they shape their world. They don't know that it's called math. They don't, they a lot of times can't even put language to it, but it's something that small children can definitely understand. But because I was taught in that way and I wanted to please my older brother, he was my older brother. I looked up to him literally and figuratively. And to me, learning math was a joy because it was something that I could really push forward. I think that in some ways, the way that we teach math in the US, especially, is like, hey, we're going to grind this into you. It's not, we're going to in no way make this fun. We're going to make it memorization. And then we're going to change it, especially, I have a son who's 22. They changed the way they taught him math four times, K through 12. And by the time he was out, he was like, I hate math. I was like, but you're actually really good at it when you just do it. 
when you're just performing, when you're just like looking at the math, you solve the equations really nicely and elegantly. He's like, yeah, but I don't solve them the way they want me to do them. And so I hate math. But to bring that back to program, that was a huge rant. To bring that back to programming, like I understand why people hate math. They're like, I'm against math. But when you actually look at the application of things, what you're doing is writing small equations, whether that's like, you know, I equals zero, I plus plus, as long as I is not greater than 100. Mm-hmm. That's an equation. That's math. I know it's just like, you know, an iteration, but like, that's math. You're doing math. You're just, you know, I is the variable. There's numbers in there. You're using the equators. You're using plus plus. These are all math things. Even, you know, def foo, foo equals bar, kickback bar. That's, you're still writing an equation. Yeah. So we've abstracted it because we don't want to sit there and go, so when this happens, zero, zero, one, zero, one, zero, zero, one, zero, 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 one. That's a pain in the butt, but we're still performing equative mathematics. It's just applied with nouns and verbs instead of ones and zeros. Yeah, I can see that. And, you know, I think I'm not anti-math, you know, like I'm not going out there telling people not to learn it. But I think there's an interesting, like, way to think about teaching math and teaching programming that comes back to how applied the knowledge. A lot Mm -hmm. of math is taught in a purely theoretical way of you know, this is what a logarithm does, but like, why would I ever use Why do I care about this? Yeah. And programming is taught similarly, right? Like if you go to a computer science classroom, they're not necessarily teaching you to build a compelling piece of software. They're teaching you how ON works, you know? And Right, exactly. That's often where you lose people. That's kind of where I was lost too. Like I love the applied side. I don't really understand why the theory is compelling, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. And then I think that's more of a basic, I actually, I know a few computer scientists and, and I think that's the difference. They're not developers. Like they mm-hmm. can be, but they love the theoretical side of it in the same way that like, you know, a lot of people love quantum physics mm-hmm. and love the mathematical side of physics where they're writing theories and, and equations to represent things. But I mean, like, I'm just interested in the simple day-to-day physics that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I want to know, you know, why do things fall? Why does gravity work? That's interesting in a layman's kind of way. And I think that like it's good that there are people on the background who are studying all of these O N situations, but you know all these N plus one very and how to that's great. We need them because they're kind of the plumbers of what we do. Mm-hmm. And I, I know some people will be like, "That's dismissive." It's not dismissive. I'm actually praising because plumbers. I can't live without a plumber. I don't get that. I, yeah. I don't understand. I can't that. fix my toilet. It's a world I don't understand. Exactly. I can't do these things on my own. We need people to plumb the depths of how these things work in the background. These are the people that are creating the languages, creating the tools that we end up using. They're absolutely necessary. And I'm, and I'm glad that they do it because like you said, I have no interest in that. I want to build applications that help people. I want to build cool stuff. I want to you know, make make something that makes someone else go, hmm, that's interesting. I'd love to iterate on that. I don't care about you know, establishing less leaky databases through you know, optimization of SQL you know, structured query languages. I don't care about that. I'm happy enough that I can write SQL statements. Mm-hmm. That's good enough for me. If I can get a computer to do a thing because it's the thing that I wanted the computer to do, that was my goal. And I think if we focus on that and, and don't get caught up in the, are we focusing on math or are we not focusing on math? Do we care about you know N plus one errors or not N plus one errors? There's a middle ground in there where we can mm-hmm. say, that's where programmers sit, that's where developers sit, that's where hackers sit. Do you think that there needs to be a different terminology for those different ends of the spectrum from a career perspective? Like everyone's going to study computer science, but not everyone wants to be a computer scientist. Right. And I think that 
that's a reflection again on the education system being a little bit behind what what's going on in the industry. I also think that in some ways you don't need to get a degree as a computer scientist to be a programmer. Um, some of the the best programmers I know have degrees in communication, degrees in music, degrees in math. They have nothing to do with you know going at an actual CS degree. I mean, I have a CS degree. I could tell you how much I've used it. It hangs nicely on my wall somewhere. I look at it occasionally. It's very pretty. That's about the value of what you know what I've used it for. I think I used it to get my first job because they asked, do you have a degree in CS? And I said, yes. And I wasn't lying. But like in general, how you come to it, and I think that like major league hacking is a great way to bring a lot of people into programming who might not have found that through standard educational techniques. Or I've heard other people who, you know, have found joy in it again because of things like MLH. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, finding that like, you know, it's not just me walking, going, writing, you know, C sharp and building bank programs and boring stuff, like going and hacking on a project and loving programming again. I think that's, it's an interesting way where we find these different paths. And like you said, like there, there's definitely a spectrum. And I think that people who are actually doing the practical applied things that we do every day care less about what the titles are that are floating around. Mm-hmm. I think that titles are the concern. That's the the milieu of of recruiters and marketers and things like that. We don't actually care. We're doing our jobs. That's the focus. Yeah, it's like the apocryphal story of that guy at Apple in the early days whose title was like wizard or something. Exactly. And I mean, like, it's just, it's in some ways just as silly now as it was back then. Like, it's an argument. I So I live in Buffalo, New York, which puts me on the border of Canada. And one of the arguments they used to get in, not arguments, discussions regularly was the fact that I could not refer to myself, regardless of what my job title was, cannot refer to myself as an engineer in Canada. Oh, yeah. Because that's an engineer, is, it's like a reserved word. People who build bridges are engineers. People who, establish how a Tim Hortons is built. Those are engineers. I'm not an engineer. I have not built any practical physical thing in the real world. And that's totally accurate. That's an accurate depiction. So there I am a programmer or a coder or a developer. I cannot be an engineer. Yep. So I want to go back in time a little bit. You mentioned that you used your computer science degree to get your first job or two, but that was kind of the extent of it. You know, there's probably something in the back of your head where it's useful, but From a practical standpoint, that was the extent of it. I noticed that those first couple of jobs were described very differently than a lot of modern software jobs. Like I saw a webmaster on your LinkedIn. What was that like? Because I, I, my early jobs were really similar. It was like webmaster at a small business (laughs) that had nothing to do with technology. Right. That's exactly what I mean. Like you're talking early 2000s. People are just getting into the idea that your business should have a website. And so kind of developing those things. And I mean, back then it wasn't even PHP. It was like HTML and CSS. Like that's about all that was going on on those pages. But you needed someone to maintain it. Yes, definitely. But like, I mean, most of the pages didn't do, they were static pages that didn't do much. And, but you needed to, like, everyone was like, oh, we need this presence. We need this, you know, way for people to see us. We need this visibility. So it was kind of fun because you could kind of, and the, the world was open. You didn't need to choose a specific thing. It was, you didn't have to have JavaScript for the love of God. You didn't need JavaScript. <laughs> Maybe those days were better, but uh, like, you know, it was, it was something that you could do. And like easily, if you knew HTML and CSS, suddenly you could be a webmaster for whoever um, you could be like, you know, a systems administrator. If you knew how to turn off and on a server, you didn't need super specialized knowledge. And in those first jobs I had, I wasn't formally trained. I was still getting my degree. 
So I, you know, it was just skills that you picked up, you know, because you went and bought a book at Barnes and Nobles and learned how to figure it out, or you took a class here or there. It was something where the, the world was kind of evened out and open to everybody. And then things got a little bit weird and the bubble burst. And it was like, okay, so being a webmaster isn't really a job because no one needs that anymore. So where, where do you go from here? Well, you know, you build applications. Now we're building applications instead of building whatever, building just websites. And that was like a paradigm shift. And it made, and it's lasted for the last, you know, almost 20 years, but it made you realize that there was, there was a different set of skills that were needed and it needed to be a little bit more upgraded because if the world still looked like, you know, geo cities of 2000, boy, it would be a bad place to live in. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what the scope of work was in those early roles? And what I mean by that is they sound like they were very general remits, right? Like you may have been oh, turning on servers while also writing HTML. Like what, what were the different things you touched? Absolutely. I mean, you're responsible for everything from we spelled someone's name wrong and we have to figure, or there's a, there's a missing closing tag on the contact page. We need to go and put that in because the website's not working. And for those of you not watching videos, I definitely put quotes around that, but like, you know, or a certain page would go down you'd have to go and say, well, why? Well, because it's running this whole web page is running off of a Dell server in the closet. Like, you know, there was no cloud. You just see you know, somebody turned off the computer, the power went out, the site's down. Those kinds of things. There's no, you know, high availability. You were doing all of those things. Like you were the webmaster. You had to be a master over everything that was involved from writing the first, you know, landing page and the header tags and the body tags and everything that went in between there, paragraph tags, figuring out how to space pictures. You were the designer, you were the developer, you were the back-end engineer, you were everything for that website every single day. And back in those days, like now there's a company called PagerDuty. Mm -hmm. Some young folks might not realize that there used to be things called pagers before there were cell phones where someone would pay, would buzz you, wake you up in the middle of the night, and this little machine would start buzzing and beeping like crazy. And you'd have to get up because, you know... Page seven, which is where you outlined all the phone numbers of all the people, even though you can't click and call them because no one has a cell phone, that page isn't working for some reason because there's a parentheses in the wrong place mm -hmm. or you missed a semicolon. And because of that, that's an emergency. And it was interesting to me because I had a slightly different perspective. I had come up on the system admin side, I'd come up working for an alarm company and you get a very different sense of what an emergency is when you're working in a place where sometimes there is a life or death situation. Mm -hmm. You know, 99.99% of what we did was false alarms. But that 0.01% that were actual alarms were serious life-threatening situations. And we, you know, you kind of put things in perspective when someone's like, my site is down. Like even, you know, going a few years later, working at a pass, a platform as a service, my site is down. I'm losing millions. It's like, first of all, no, you're not. Second of all, you can afford to be down for a couple of minutes while AWS refreshes your instances or whatever. It's fine, not a huge deal. But you know, this it was still a very wild west world. If I decided as a webmaster, I'm just going to take this whole page down and redo the whole thing and hope that it works, no one could stop me because no one had an understanding of what any of that stuff meant. Like it was a very walled garden, a highly walled garden with a very strong gate. And you could charge so much money because no one understood this world. Now, even you know, casual users kind of understand how an application gets built. They might not know exactly how it's built, but they have a general sense that, you know, there's some programmers on the other side who are writing code and designing it and building it. But back then it was a black box. Like you were, you know, it was like you could fix the VCR. And then that was the other interesting thing about the job back then. 
sometimes your job was had nothing to do with the website itself, but like you were the tech person. So like, oh, my, you know, our digital camera is not working. Oh, I can't figure out how to get the pictures off of the camera. And it's like, okay, that's not really my purview, but let's deal with it anyway, because you're the techie person. You're the person who understands these things. You know, you know how to set the clock on the VCR and that's, that's what, and sometimes that's what qualified you to figure out how to build a website. Yeah. Well, if you could fix the clock on the VCR, you must be pretty savvy. Well, you know. I distinctly remember the first like time someone actually paid me to, you know, be a webmaster. I was in high school and there were times where their website would go down and they would wait for me to get out of school to come fix it. You know, like <laughs> it was like this exactly, really funny exactly. thing. Yeah, you know. Do you think there's any equivalent to that type of like generalist role today or is everything hyper specialized? I think that there are places for it. This is where and I don't want to get too in the the weeds about it, but like you see terms like full stack developer, which to me is is someone who has that idea of okay, I understand how things get deployed. I understand, you know, containers, Kubernetes, the world of cloud. I understand that. Maybe not as deeply as a systems administrator or an SRE, but I get it. And I also understand how to write code, how to interact with databases. I can write a SQL query, but also write JavaScript. I feel like that's that kind of generalist is still very valued. I think those are the people that you see kind of advance into management roles eventually because they do understand the full spectrum. But I also see this as a major press of like, what is the DevOps movement? People that understand that full cadre of you know, from beginning to end, how do we come from conception to code to deployment to everything in between and have an actual working product? I think that that's a, a big movement that's still very prevalent today. So I do think there is, it's evolved, but there is still a generalist road. We just call it, you know, DevOps manager instead of calling it webmaster. That's um, a controversial thing I said that's going to get me in trouble. I was going to say, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's probably pretty controversial, but I mean, it's unlikely that they're going to have any DevOps engineer fixing their VCR or Obviously, they don't have a VCR, but, you know, fixing right. whatever... their proverbial VCR. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. Like, I, I do think I don't, you know, mean to be fully nostalgic because I don't think things were inherently better back then. But there was a almost like permission to learn how everything fit together that is now abstracted away from an individual developer. Like, I don't need Mm -hmm. to understand how the hard drive fits into the server because it's done in some data center by some specialist who that's all they do is like set up hard drives. Yeah. But back then, I mean, like I had to buy a hard drive on the internet and make sure it was compatible and maybe go to a computer show and pick it up. You know, like there was all this like stuff you got to play with that was fun, Mm -hmm. maybe inefficient. And then some of it's now relegated to kind of the hobbyist. It's like, you know, I know a lot of people are like, you know, if you can buy them right now, you get Raspberry Pis and try to set them up as servers or. You know, when I was at Mattermost, when we met, like, you know, I tried to run Mattermost on a Raspberry Pi just as an experiment to see if it'd work. And it does, not great, but it's functional. And it's kind of like some of that, the things that we would do naturally as, as a job before have become more of that like hobbyist experimental side. Not enough to get us into that super computer science side, but enough to be like, hey, could I still do this? Let me see if, if I still have those skills. And I mean, I even, you know, at one point in time, just to experiment, I was like, could I build a website that's just HTML? Without using a site generator, without using JavaScript, could I still do something that's just HTML and try it out? And I did for one of my clients when I was working at Deverlate, we were running a contest and they just needed a scoreboard. And I was like, cool, we don't even need a database for this because it's not a consistently updated scoreboard. We just need to add who's in first, second, and third place as that information changes. And they were like, 
did you really just write that in HTML? I was like, yeah. And it was fun. Yeah. I had such a good time with it. But yeah, I mean, I think that sometimes we overcomplicate things now. There's too many abstraction layers. There's too much like reliance on clever code versus functional code. I think that a lot of the things that we build are over-engineered. And if we got back to, you know, just thinking about like writing simple apps that do simple things, you know, and that fits in with the, the microservices model and it fits in with, you know, the concept of DevOps. If it's in with the constant deployments, sure. I mean, that's things that, you know, I remember when I first heard, oh, you should be constantly deploying. We have constant continuous integration. I'm like, yeah, I had that back in the day when I was a webmaster and I was the only person who was developing a website. It's not yeah. that hard. You just FTP um, in and edit the live file, right? Exactly. It's like, how hard could they be? I don't even need to be there because FTP can be done remotely over my 14.4 baud modem. It's not that difficult. And I think that we like to, especially technology, we like to put new names on old things and pretend that they're new. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like it's a generational thing because it comes up each generation where someone wants to feel they've discovered something. Um, you know, I found that, again, when I was in the Ruby community, everybody was like, wow, model view controller, that's great. Model view controller is a concept that came around in the 70s. Mm-hmm. David Heinemeyer Hansen did not develop that in 2004. It was not a new idea. You know, PHP had already started fooling around with that with their frameworks. There was nothing new in the in the concept. But a whole generation of developers like, this is genius. So, I mean, it's kind of the the everything old is new. And I, again, like you, I don't want to be nostalgic and be like, things were better back in the day. It's like, you know, things can be as good as you want them to. But I think if you want to work in the modern tech industry, you have to kind of kowtow a little bit to the idea that we we are more focused on iteration than innovation at this point. Interesting. So to kind of switch gears, it's clear from hearing you talk about it that you really enjoyed, you know, being that implementer and like figuring everything out. And you made a transition at some point in your career from, you know, being a webmaster or being a software developer to being a developer relations person under whatever title that was given at a particular company. <laughs> like, why did you make that shift? Like, what changed <laughs> the trajectory of your career? It's interesting because it wasn't, like, it wasn't a conscious thing. And when it happened, it wasn't even like a job that people had. What happened with me was I, you know, I'd been at a conference that was actually with Jim Wyrick to bring bring him up again. We were playing some guitars at, at a conference called Steel City Ruby. And I loved going, I love going to conferences. I seeing people, what are you doing? What are what are your projects? What how are you solving this particular problem like in an interesting way? And just learning and growing as a developer. And one of our mutual friends, a guy named Corey Haynes, said, Hey, how come you never give a talk? You're always here. I see you at every conference I'm at. Why don't you ever give a talk? And I'm like, ah, you know, I've thought about it. I've like half an idea for one, maybe someday, but I'm not a core contributor. I'm just a guy who writes code. Like, you know, it's not, I don't come up with the ideas. I'm not innovative in any way. So why would people be interested? And he's like, cool, cool. And he walked out of the room and he comes back in. I thought he was going to get sodas or another slice of pizza or something. He looks at me and goes, I totally signed you up for a lightning talk. And I was like, you did what? Like I said, I had half an idea. I don't have slides. I don't have anything. He's like, oh yeah, and they're right after lunch. So, and you're going after me. I was like, this is all a train wreck. This is terrible. But I got up and I did my five minutes and I talked about how you should treat meetups because I was a huge, I'm still to this day, a huge fan of meetups, how you should treat them like open source projects because the way it works in open source is like you have kind of a leader, but there's lots of people underneath that in the community who are helping to continue to move that that project forward. And I, I talked about it and I came off stage and I was kind of chilling out. And I, I'll admit that at the time, you know, I was smoking. So I was having a cigarette and a guy came up to me. He's like, that was great. Would you do that as a full talk at my conference? And I said, what? And I, I answered honestly, I said, I don't know, because I was a support engineer at a company called Edgin Yard. It's a platform and a service. So I 
called my boss and I was like, Hey, Sean, am I allowed to go speak at conferences? He's like, yeah, absolutely you are. So I started doing that. One thing led to another, eventually started a community team with a guy named Eamon Leonard at Engine Yard. And at the time, DevRel wasn't a job. You did not have a community team whose job it was to go speak at conferences and write blog posts and write example code and teach people how to use the platform and teach people how to use the different languages we're using. That wasn't a thing. It wasn't a job. Well, what year uh, so are we talking here? 2011, 2012. Like people were starting, just starting to adopt the concept of evangelism, which is a little bit different than de- developer advocacy, but it still wasn't super common. And people would be like, that's not a real job. So it just, but one thing kind of led to another. And I, I just enjoyed it so much. The people aspect, like remembering that technology is built, you know, technology by definition is building a tool that helps humans do something more easily. That to me, like you can't do that without the human side of the equation. So you have to go out there. You have to go to where the humans are and talk to them about like, what are your pain points? What are the things you want to do? What are your aspirations? Why are you doing this in the first place? What got you interested in it? And learning from that and realize you can build better applications, better product, write better code based on what these people are doing and their interests and their things. And just remembering that the human at the other end of things was the key. So I just love that aspect of it. And that's why I've kind of stayed with it for so long. That's why I created Deverlate because I wanted to have something where you know smaller companies could get into it and do that. I created Call of Conduct, callofconduct.com, because I wanted events to be able to be more inclusive and diverse and having a code of conduct that you can enforce and have steps to take if someone violates that was key. So call of conduct became a thing. And to me, it's just like more about the people than the code. Like I believe that anybody, if they really put their mind to it, just about anybody could decide to be an engineer, a coder, a developer, and be part of the world of technology. And I want them to. And that's really what it what it boils down to. And some of that was also, you know, my musician side, just like being a general people person and applying what you can do to make people happy. Like that's really what it's about for me. Yeah. I completely agree that anyone can be a coder. Like you mentioned earlier that, you know, MLH and what we do is sort of a way for people to enjoy coding and building. And one of the things that always comes to mind for me is that only like 50% of our students are computer science majors. You know, the rest are learning programming on their own or as a minor or to accomplish some particular goal. Like it's, I do think there is a place for people who love coding for the sake of coding. But I also think there's Mm -hmm. enormous opportunities for people who see it as a means to an end for a different discipline and treat it as a tool more than a pursuit in itself. Well, I also think that it's becoming a thing where even in non-tech companies or non-tech jobs, it's becoming more prevalent that you need to know a little bit of code. Yeah. Or at least, you know, I think that's part of where you're seeing like the no code movement, the low code movement, which I think are kind of, they're kind of a trend. They're kind of a fad. It's not necessarily where the world's going. People will need to know how to use code to a degree. Or even just you know understanding code so you understand better the applications. Using you're working in marketing and you're using Figma and Canva and things that are like you know really helpful. But those are actually advanced technological tools. And if you know how to add code to those things, well, you're ten steps ahead of the next person. So I, I think yeah, I mean like it doesn't surprise me that MLH is seeing more and more non CS majors jump onto to doing things. I also think that it, it kind of scratches an itch for some people. It's like, you know, I want to know how to bake. So I'm going to read a bunch of recipes. Well, these are our recipes. And if you can figure out how to write the recipe, that's even better because now I've created my own dish with my own spin. Yep. So when we think about developer relations, obviously like you started it sort of, you fell backwards into it, I'll say, right? Like you, you found yeah, something yeah. you were passionate about and managed to somehow turn it into a job. That's the story for a lot of people who get into DevRel. But 
you've touched DevRel at a number of different companies. And I'm curious oh, what yeah. patterns you've seen across all of the different DevRel teams that you've been involved with. So I think there's two perspectives here. There's the, the perspective of the DevRel team itself, and there's a perspective of the people who are paying us. And I think that the, the perspective of the DevRel team, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of similarity. There's a lot of continuity from team to team that I've worked with. That the idea is never, you know, you are an advocate and your real main goal, your real job is to bring information from the world back into the company. That's your main focus. Like this is the part that people don't get about advocacy. It's like, yes, we go and we speak and maybe we talk about the product, but I don't really generally talk about products. I talk about solutions and how, how they help people. And that's the focus. But what I really want to do is, is then go out and say like, hey, you're using, and I mean, just some of the companies I've worked with, you're using IBM Cloud, you're using Engine Yard, you're using Mattermost. What do you like or not like about it? What are the things that are working or not working for you? What are the features you'd like to see? What are cool things that you've done with the product? Taking that back into the company and saying, hey, here's what I've learned. That's really the, the consistent job that the way it should be done. In my mind, Interesting. this is my opinion, of course. But the thing that's always changing is the perspective of what DevRel is from company to company. Some people think that it's a marketing function, so you can build more top of funnel activity. Some people think that it's you know a way to get the word out there because we're open source, a pipeline to hire more developers. And all of those things and none of those things are correct. Hmm. In my mind, developer relations is a way to understand where you fit into the world of the people who are using the products you build and to take that information and build a better product. That's where it should be. We should not be focused on increasing sales numbers or ensuring that the marketing message is delivered the way it is. What we should do is find out what the people out there want and tell you what they want so that you can build it better and deliver on those wants and needs. Do you think that DevRel should sit in a product org or engineering org? Yes, I do. If it has to sit somewhere, then that's where it should be. I thoroughly believe that DevRel should be its own entity because you kind of sit between marketing, sales, engineering, product, and the C-suite because the C-suite is in charge of all messaging at the end of the day. You should sit somewhere. Like if you look, remember those old star network diagrams, you're the circle in the center. They're the circles on the outside. You're actually connecting internally a lot of those teams because they wouldn't talk to each other otherwise. Like sure, sales and marketing will talk to each other and marketing engineering. Sales doesn't talk to engineering. They don't understand it. You're the translator there. You're the person who is bringing those relationships together. I think that it's important that DevRel at its best should be sitting on its own as its own entity. Interesting. There's a lot we could unpack there. I don't know that we have time to, <laughs> to dig into where DevRel sits in the org, but I do think it's an interesting take on it. What are some of the anti-patterns you've seen across all these different DevRel teams? You don't have to call anyone out specifically, but like, what would right, your teams right. consistently, you know, do wrong? <laughs> um, I think, I think, and it's not, again, it's not always the team, sometimes it's the people above them, but pushing product is not usually a good, successful way to do things. Holding DevRel to metrics that don't apply to DevRel, like sitting there and saying like, oh, you know, we want to see an MRR increase of 10% based on DevRel activities. That's not how this works at all. DevRel is a long tail game. You might not see, M, you know, a bump in revenue from a DevRel activity for six to eight to 12 months. That's realistic. And you have to understand that. I think one of the biggest things that people miss in DevRel is that you have to have a relationship with your communities. At MLH, you definitely understand the, the point of the community that you're reaching out to. One of the things that is often missed is that th those relate, you've got the dev part, like every DevRel team has a dev part down. Great. It's the rel part that most of the upper echelon seems to miss. We're developing relationships. My buddy, Jason Han used to talk about how 
you know, DevRel is measured in hugs and high fives. Mm-hmm. Post COVID, we're changing that to fist bumps. But nonetheless, like that's actually how it's measured. Like the fact that you and I, John, we met a while ago and we have a relationship. You know, are we super close? Am I coming to your house for birthday parties? No. But if we saw each other, you know, maybe we'd have a drink at the bar, or yep. chat about what, what's going on lately in our lives. That relationship is what DevRel teams build. And I think that that's the biggest anti-pattern that is the biggest thing that is missed by DevRel teams is, oh, we should build relationships out there. It's not about the speaker who's on stage. It's not about the author of that blog post. It's not about the influence that they have. Being good at DevRel doesn't mean having 50,000 followers on Twitter. Being good at DevRel means that you can show up at a place and they say, hey, we've got an open slot. We'd love for you to speak. That's more important. Not because you're an influencer or you have all the shine in the world, but because you have respected thoughts on the topic at hand and you should be included in the conversation. That's what matters. I think that's what a lot of places miss. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I was not able to do consistently, but was incredibly valuable for the short time I did it at Twilio was I set up a system to pop emails back into my inbox if I hadn't spoken to someone in six months. And so I literally had this like cadence where, hey, I met you at a meetup. How's it going? And there was no goal in mind. It was literally just like a friendly check-in. And it resulted right. in so much interesting serendipity that I never could have predicted or even like measured in a quantifiable way. But like it made people feel so good and supported and like cared about by this team that like built a product that they just like happened to use, you know? Uh, right, and, really right. and that's the key. We want to make people happy. We want to make them feel heard. That should be the point of of DevRel in general. It's not about, you know, it's not about, you know, can I get my name out there? Can I be internet famous or whatever? It's about, you know, are we delivering in something that actually brings value to people? This is the thing that I always say about Mary Thangval's book. Mary's a very dear friend. And Mary knows her goal was not to get famous off that book. The fame thing was coincidental, but I will tease her to no end on that fact. She is famous. But the point was to point out we bring a value that has nothing to do with any of those things, any of those monetary things. It's about the relationships we build. That's the value that we bring. So it brings brand loyalty. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, a lot of marketing people say, oh, we want, we want brand loyalty. Like, you know what brings brand loyalty? Being kind. I fly Delta because Delta always takes care of me. Mm-hmm. Whenever I have a problem, they're willing to help. Whenever I reach out, they're right there immediately to answer my questions. That builds loyalty to a brand. That's the same thing that we're doing at DevRel. When we're showing up at places, we're saying, hey, we care about you people. You know, we give a crap about, you know, the Little Rock, Arkansas of the world because we're showing up and say, showing that we care. That's not based on the fact that somebody said, oh, well, we could grow 40% if we went to the Midwest. No, it's because you have a community and that community deserves to be heard just like the ones in New York and California. Mm-hmm. That's what it's all about. That's what I'm passionate about. It's like, there are people out there that could benefit from the work we're doing. Yeah. Let's find them and help them find the way to get the benefits. I'm getting does, all ranty now. <laughs> no, I mean, this is great. I, like, how does teaching factor into that? Because I, I would imagine that, you know, I mean, I know for a fact, like in DevRel, you're dealing with people at all different stages, right? Stages of expertise, stages of adoption of the product, stages of their career. Uh, do you think that DevRel is responsible for for teaching and education? Like, is that part of that? relations and product sort of like feedback job. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think that and part of that, you know, that's the benefit, part of the benefit we bring back to our employers is, you know, if I can go out there and say like, yeah, so cool. So Go is a cool language and we've gone to a bunch of Go events and we've seen that like 
nascent Go developers don't understand how to use our API. So let's like adjust that so we can speak to that. But I think that like part of the like whole developer experience, developer education, like we have to understand what it is that we need to teach before we start to teach it. I think that's where developer relations kind of comes in. But also like a lot of times developer relations experts or practitioners, whatever we want to call them, like DevRel folks are, they're the ones leading the workshops at CodeMash today. I'm not there, but like there's lots of companies that are doing, you know, workshops. So you can say, here's how to use our pod. Here's how to get started with this open source language. Here's how to do this, this, and this. And, and there's also Kids Mash, which is teaching. That's a huge part of what we do. But there's also like, you know, over the next few days, there'll be talks about, you know, various aspects of programming languages where developers who have maybe a, a more advanced expertise or they're in that intermediate level can up their skills and build on what they're doing. And that's the point of what I, I think every touch point you have, whether it's writing a blog post about getting started with the Spotify API or pointing out the internals of why React doesn't work well with MySQL under certain circumstances for super advanced developers, that's education for specific audiences where they there's value. There's a spectrum there. You just have to establish what the spectrum is. DevRel helps you understand where that spectrum is and where your particular use case or a product or application can be beneficial to the people you're trying to reach. Yeah, I love that. We only have a couple of minutes left here. I've really enjoyed this. I always like to end on kind of a weird question that I think is kind of fun and, and novel. Thinking about like all of the possible people in the world, like tech, science, DevRel, maybe just unrelated tech completely. Is there someone that you like aspirationally would want to spend a couple hours with, take them to lunch, pick their brain? Oh, that is an interesting question. I think I would love to actually sit down in the world of tech specifically. I, I'd love to sit down and go to lunch with Steve Wozniak. I find he's such an interesting character because like, here's a guy who is at the beginning of Apple, helped build one of the most dominant tech companies in the world, but also was the backseater. And not the guy to gain the fame, but still love and still building things to this day, loves open source. And like, how do you have this confluence of like, oh, I was at the most closed source company in the world ever that later changed its ways, but also like, you know, rode that thing, but also just a brilliant mind that I think that it would be interesting. I've never really crossed paths with him. So I think that it would be super interesting. And I will say like in, in my career, I've been lucky. I've been very lucky that I've been able to meet like some really cool people. You know, I, I had lunch and played chess against Gary Kasparov once. Like, it's just because he was at a tech conference. Like, it's really wild who you might run into. But I think Steve Wozniak is one of the few people that I've not been able to come across. And I worry about that. Like, it's a good question that you ask because I worry about this because sometimes you meet someone that that maybe was a hero. They turn out to be the biggest disappointment in the world. I mean, you're like, crap, this was my one lunch and I it like it sucked. But like, yeah, so there's a super interesting question, but. Off the top of my head, I'd say Steve Wozniak from the world of tech. Um, my favorite Steve Wozniak anecdote had this like weird opportunity to go to the Homebrew Computer Club reunion many years ago. And nice. he was there speaking. I didn't get to spend one-on-one -on -one time with him, but he relayed this story that part of what drove him to make the first Apple to demo at that meetup was that mm -hmm. he was going to the meetup and he felt so intimidated by all of the cool stuff that people were showing off that he wanted to show that he could do something cool too. And so he just like figured out how to do this thing to make people think he knew what he was doing. And that was like the impetus for some of the really early prototypes of the Apple was just like, he wanted to be part of the club. Like he wanted to show that he mm -hmm. knew what he was doing too. And 
he thought everyone else's stuff was way cooler than his. Now, granted, no one else's stuff made a trillion dollar company, but like it's like a little like moment, you know, like this like little right. snapshot of time where he was just like some guy at a meetup. Well, I mean, this is one of the things that we talk about, especially when it, like Steve Wozniak, a guy who's just very looked up to in the tech world. And he's, you know, he has imposter syndrome. Everybody suffers from imposter syndrome at some point in time. I did when I first, when Corey signed me up for that first talk, I was like, I'm not a, I'm not a person who talks. That's not what I do. I write code. Why would I be the person you brought up on stage? And it, it's interesting to see. I think there's so many stories, not just in DevRel, but in tech in general of, I didn't think I was the person that did this thing. I didn't, you know, I didn't write databases. I didn't build code languages. I didn't make applications. I didn't know how to write code. I couldn't build a website. But then you take a step forward out of your comfort zone and you do. You do do those things. And it could your chances of being Steve Wozniak successful are pretty slim. I was just having a conversation a little while ago before we got on this call with another friend of mine. And he said, you know, the thing is, you have to decide how you measure your success. Hmm. It could just be that you took that one extra step. You took that chance to not regret not doing a thing that makes you successful in your own eyes. And I think that that's, that's the key. You know, you step outside of your comfort zone. When I created Deverlate, no one had ever created a contract developer relations company before. And I was terrified. And I'm so glad at this point that I did it, that I had that experience, that we built what became, you know, a model for other companies. It made me super happy. So that's that my big, biggest piece of advice. You don't think you can talk in front of a crowd? Do it. You don't think you can write a blog post anyone's going to read? Do it anyway. What's the harm? If everyone ignores you, you've lost nothing. On that off chance that everybody's like, you're the next Steve Wozniak, that works out pretty well for you. Yeah. That's a fantastic note to end on. Thank you so much, PJ. I really enjoyed the conversation and everything you had to share. Where can people find you on the internet if they want to see more of what you're doing? Yeah. So, I mean, it's pretty easy to find me. This is a story we didn't get into, but my username on almost everything is a splenic. Discord, Xbox Live, Hackaderm.io, so Mastodon, Twitter, GitHub, it's all a splenic, A-S-P-L-E-E-N-I-C. I lost my spleen when I was 19, started using it as a username after an incident with the FBI. Doesn't happen to be taken on most platforms. That's a story for a different time. We don't talk about that one. That is uh, suppressed. But yeah, so it's been my username on just about everything for years and years and years. So yeah, if you're looking, if the username is a splenic, it's probably me. Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much. Thank everyone for listening. If you enjoyed it, definitely, you know, like and subscribe. That's what we're always supposed to say. And happy hacking, everyone. The State of Developer Education is brought to you by Major League Hacking. To find out more about Major League Hacking and how we're educating the next generation of developers and helping the world's leading companies reach them, visit sponsor.mlh.io. And make sure to search for developer education in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen, and click like and subscribe so that you don't miss any future episodes. And if you like it, please don't forget to leave a review, and we'll give you a shout out on a future podcast. On behalf of the team here at Major League Hacking, thanks for listening and helping us empower the next generation of technologists. Happy hacking! Happy hacking!